So this is our last Outstanding Promises series, and uh, we're talking, so far we have talked about Adam, the promise that God has given to Adam. We've then moved from Adam to Noah. We went from Noah to Abraham, and from Abraham to Moses. And so now we are in a place where we understand that the promise that God gave to Adam was that he was going to give him a seed and make everything right. The promise God gave to Noah was a promise that, that he was never going to destroy everything and let chaos take over the world again. He was not going to let that happen again. Um, the, the promise that God made to Abraham was that, was that his seed was going to bless everybody and that God was going to give his descendants a land. The promise that God gave to Noah was that God was going to be with him and that God was going to lead Israel into a land, into the promised land. And so that has caught us up to where we are. Um, Sandra Richter in The Garden of Eden, it's a great book. If you ever get a chance to read a theological a theological book, read this book. It opens up your eyes to the Old Testament. In fact, I'm looking at doing a, an Old Testament study on, on this book, uh, on the Old Testament, and it's really a good guidance. But she says that there are five places that we can hang our hats uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, five characters, Adam, um, Noah, David, or Adam, Noah, Moses, David, and I've, Abraham. And so we, uh, we know that, these are, that this is how we see the consecutive building of God's promise. So all these people were promised very important things. And by the end of today's message, we're going to see how all of these people point us to Jesus. That one of them alone doesn't point us to Jesus. It's actually all of them together point us to Jesus and help us recognize Jesus. And today we're going to get through that. So we're moving fast today. If you have questions, use your tablet. Go down to today's message and, uh, and put a question. And hopefully I'm going to have time at the end to deal with that. So the story of David first caught my eye when I was in grade two. In grade two, I went to a Christian school, and the first book that I ever read cover to cover was a book that was written for a grade four level, grade five level, and it was the history of David's life from childhood all the way through to, uh, through to his death. So it spans from the beginning of 1 Samuel all the way to First uh, Kings uh, 1 Kings 2, verse 12, when David dies. We're not reading all of it. Don't worry. Not today. Um, so his life is, is bolstered. What we know of his life is bolstered by the amount of comments. We see his genealogy in the book of Ruth. We see his, uh, we see his prayers in the Psalms. Uh, we see him reflected upon in the prophets. And in the New Testament, we see David. David is one of the most common uh, people found in the Bible. When you, when you look at people studies, David is, he has as much focus as Jesus. Like it's just, I haven't done the numbers on that, but that's just, when you read through the Bible, he's just everywhere. And so we're, we're, looking, at, we're looking at David, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on a, the climax of David's kingship. Um, 
I'm going to set it up a little bit because we've gone through these promises. The appearance is that the promises of God have been fully revealed. By the time that David is king, by the time that David, he's actually the first king that unites all of Israel together under one king, all 12 tribes under one king. He's also the first king that centralizes everything into Jerusalem. He's the first king that, that, that puts the tabernacle and the, and the ruling palace together. And so he's done a lot of significant things. And from the perspective of Israel, the, the king and the promises of God are being fully revealed and fully lived out right then. We have the, the presence of God lives with them in the tabernacle. And the, the promise of God that he is going to be there is, is already fulfilled. The promise of God that the, that the land is going to be given is already fulfilled. The promise of God that, um, that there will be order in their land, that it makes sense that things are working under Torah, under the law of God, it's happening. The promise of God that they will bless all nations is right at the cusp of happening. They're at the point where Israel as a nation is established. They're in their greatest moment of their history. And the world is starting to take notice that Israel is a sure thing. They are building and they are strong and they have what they need. The promises of God have taken them through 3,000 years of history from the time when, when Adam is first promised through all the way, they've taken them all the way through the flood, all the way through all of these other people that we've mentioned, and have brought us to a point where God has come such a far away, and it's a time of great celebration. Huge time of great celebration. And David sees this, and he's like, this is amazing. Look at how great God is. And that's, when you think of David's stories, one of the craziest stories is when the Ark of the Covenant is returned and David just loses it. Like he loses all his clothing. He's jumping up and down through the middle of the streets and he's just like, oh my goodness, the glory and the presence of God is back. We are in business again. This is amazing. And he is realizing that, that Israel is, is in the midst of the fulfillment of God's promises. And I want to pause right there because around this circle here, we actually see this cycle that goes through for promise, trust, following, questioning, and mission. David is living in the mission. He is doing and accomplishing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's right there, steps into the fullness of the promises of God, and there he is, and he's excited. And it's great. And so here's where we get this, this climactic verse. It is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. And uh, this is going to, it, it's a great story because uh, God uses a pun in here. And I, I, I love it. I think it's great. So, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, because the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people from Israel to Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the other judges about Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, where, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you will say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people of Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, declare, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me as a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and with the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with the vision Nathan spoke it to to David. Wow. Huge. So there's a lot going on in this passage. It's a very, very heavy, heady passage. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And it's one of the most central covenants for all of Israel. In the center of it, in verse 13, through and also echoed in verse 15, there's a verse, these verses change the course of Israel forever. These verses become the future hope of Israel. These are... um, Everything has has hinged on the covenant of Moses. And as I said, it's already being fulfilled. And now we're at a point where there is something so strongly being said that God is actually taking them from mission right into promise. And so he's taking them from mission into promise. And he's saying, it's right here that we see that God is not done yet. How many people are a little bit excited that God isn't done his work yet? Like, to me, that's a big deal. To me, it's like, yeah, this is amazing that God's not done his work because God has not, he's not done, even though it looked like he was done. It looked like all of those promises, they were all working, they were all fulfilled, and David goes, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build God a house. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make what is happening now I'm going to make it permanent. It's now, now that the promises are fully being, are they're happening. All of these promises up to this point, they're happening. And now we're going to solidify it. We're going to lay down a foundation. We are going to build a house and it's going to be permanent. 
And God's saying, I'm going to build you a house. I'm, I'm building you a house. And the word house is, is dynasty. It's the same word. I will build you a dynasty. And so God just flips it on David and is like, you think you could do something for me? You think that you have the power to make my promises be fully revealed in the world? You don't have a clue how much I actually promise. I'm going to show you the next step. I'm going to show you the next thing that's happening. And so he's like, I'm going to build you a house, and it's going to be established forever. It's going to be established forever. Now, this piece here, this, this future hope that God is going to live with us, and something is going to happen that is permanent, is something that really impacts Israel. Because the mountain of the Lord, Jerusalem, is set next to the palace of the king, we have this, this picture that we have come to know as Zion. We have Zion established. And God, in 2 Samuel 7, has now put it out that he is like, this is permanent. I'm going to make this more permanent than your house was going to make it. I'm going to set this up forever. My Old Testament professor wrote in his book that uh, the belief that Yahweh's promise would never fail even after the disappearance of the kingdom of Judah and its Davidic rules played a major role in the development of a messianic hope in Israel. That is, in that an ideal and perfect son of David would arise to restore the nation and establish a kingdom of justice and peace. In that verse, what happens is God says, I'm going to do something permanent and there will always be a son of David on the throne and it will last, he will last forever. Israel finds hope. And they find security. They know that, that Jerusalem will never fall. So a little bit of history where we get this, this fun piece coming together is secular history actually confirms these reports. It tells us the other side of a story that I'm about to tell. So the Assyrians uh, were, were gaining strength. This is after David, and this is after Solomon. This is after, so after Solomon, um, Israel splits up into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. And so, a lot of our prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Joel, a lot of them are actually written to Israel. Um, Joel is interesting because they say that it was written to Israel and then reinterpreted to be the same warning that happened to Israel to happen to Judah. So what happens is Assyria is gaining strength. And Assyria is the opposite end of the power scale in terms of on the map than Egypt. And I was supposed to show this map last week, but I completely forgot, and I'm not going to show it today. But there's, uh, there's, there's, the, there's the Assyrian Empire that's coming down from the east, they're in the northeast. And then there's Israel, right on the shore of the Mediterranean. And it takes you all the way down into Egypt. And this cycle is actually, this, this area is called the Fertile Crescent. And so Assyria is the powerhouse on the east, on the northeast. Egypt is a powerhouse from the south. 
and they constantly are at war with each other. So as one empire expands, they take over the Fertile Crescent, which is Israel, and then they wane, and the other one expands and takes over the Fertile Crescent, which is Israel. And, and God plants his people in the middle of one of the greatest conflict zones in the history of humanity still today. And all of it's built around this fertile land. It is beautiful. It is tropical. It is wonderful. Um, it is green. I don't care what the media tells you. It's actually green. And there are fruit trees everywhere. It is amazing. Um, I was so shocked when, when our friends came from Syria and, and he started describing Syria to me. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's not what the news shows. The news shows it to be brown. His pictures show it to be green. It's amazing. So this is what's happening. We have, we have the king of Assyria. His name is Sakranib. And he comes down from the north and he starts attacking everything that's in his way. He is expanding the Assyrian Empire. And he's just coming down with his huge chariots. And he's just destroying everything. And the prophets see it coming and they start warning Israel in the north. You're about to fall. Turn back to God. You're about to fall. Turn back to God. And it gets really depressing. And all of these terrible things start to happen. And sure enough, Assyria comes down and Sacranib destroys the, the ten tribes to the north. But this verse, this verse that we've looked at, verse 13, says, it's very, very clear to us, I will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And they stand on that verse in, inside of Zion, inside of Jerusalem. They're just like, nope, this isn't going to fall. This is not the will of God. God will protect his land. This is not happening. And, and the crazy thing happens that they're there and they are praying. And from their perspective, the nighttime comes and God sends great confusion among the army of the Assyrians. And they flee and they leave. And, the, and when the sun rises up, the watchers go out, into, go out into the land and they're just like, all the goods of the, of the Assyrian army are just plundered over the landscape and they're all there. And so the people are just like, sweet, we're taking this. And they take it all back into Jerusalem because Jerusalem was under siege. And this verse stands as true. God is faithful and he is going to establish the Davidic kingdom forever. It's never going to fail. Oh my God, amazing. That's what they say. They're just like, this is wonderful. And then the warnings start. Oh, sorry, I'll tell you about Sacronim's account of it. Sacronim's account of it is that they were coming down and they'd been, they'd been successful and they were doing amazing and they were destroying all of the lands and taking them over and taking the people captive. And they besieged Jerusalem and there became such a rainstorm and such a continual uh, lack of health among the troops that the chariots and the horses were getting stuck in the mud and the people were suffering from malnutrition and he did not have the, the wherewithal to continue the siege and so he abandoned his things and told his army to retreat. Sounds like the same story to me. <laughs> Sounds like the same story to me and it's recorded both in the Bible and in historic writings that are secular and I'm just like... That's so cool. That's so cool. 
So, so what we have is God establishing his promises and saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. But then what happens is the prophets start speaking to Israel and saying, you're so confident, you're so, and you're ignoring God. You're ignoring God. You're not following his ways. And all of the, everything is, is hinged on you following his ways. Everything's hinged on you following. Do what God says. And you're just, you're just not. And so the warning comes, it says your, your land is going to be taken. And the Babylonian Empire was from behind Assyria. And the Babylonian Empire just swallowed up Assyria and just continued down the Fertile Crescent and came and took over, took over, Israel, took over Judah. Jerusalem fell. And they were carried away. It's in the exile that the messianic hope becomes evident. It's in the exile that they go, okay, God, you had this promise. Uh, we, we, we don't have Zion anymore. It kind of fell. We, it didn't happen. And they're kind of intimidated. They're kind of like weirded out. They're kind of going like, don't get it. We were obliterated. What happens when the promise of God doesn't work out the way that you thought it was going to? What does it do to your faith? What happens when you thought that it was going to just be the same and it isn't? And God says, okay, okay, I get it. And so the hope that was brought in the promise, they start understanding is a hope that God has for a king to come. For a king to come who will be established forever. Look at this. I put in my notes. I said, go to page 2,111. Let's see what's on that page. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't feel like reading the reference. So here we go. It's Acts chapter uh, 13. This is not in my notes. Sorry, Devin. Um, Acts chapter 13 that says in 32, And we bring you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. It is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. He's referring to this verse, that somebody will be on the throne forever. And what the, what the author of Acts is doing through the voice of, P, of Paul is saying that somebody who is on the throne forever is the person of Jesus Christ, the one who has come from the line of David. He has come to stand on the throne, and he's blowing this whole thing up to make it way bigger. So what happened here? How did we get from David 400 years ago to now they see it in Jesus? Because in this time, when 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 the Jews, who they began to be known in the exile, they were not called the Jews before, they were called Israelites. Uh, when the Jews became, when they gathered in their synagogues and they kept on reading scripture, they kept on seeing this Davidic promise and they said, God is not done. God's not done. Something's coming to restore us. It was promised through Jeremiah. It was promised through, um, through Nehemiah. It was promised through Ezra. It was promised in Ezekiel. So they go, God is still not done. Look at this verse in Ezekiel 34. It says, My sheep were scattered. They wandered all 
Over all the mountains and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the people and gather them from their countries. I will bring them into the land of their own. I will feed them on the mountain of Israel by the ravens and in the Inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they will feed on the mountains of Israel, and I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. God's saying, I'm drawing it all back. I'm coming back, and there's going to be a king, and I'm promising to fulfill this Davidic covenant. And so in Acts, they're actually seeing Jesus is this king. Jesus is the one who's fulfilling all of this. Jesus is the one who's getting it. So Jesus says in John, he says, I am the good shepherd. Wait, we just heard that in Ezekiel. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. Here's a bold statement. Jesus is recognized as the savior of the world because he fulfilled the promises to Adam, to Noah, to Moses, or to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Jesus fulfills all of them. And the verse I read earlier today says that he sent a helper to be with us. We are now part of those, we have been part of those scattered sheep that God has called to himself. And he said, I want to be with you, and I'm still going to make everything right. I'm still there. Still going to make it right. I'm still going to be with you. The theme of the Old Testament is the only way in which Jesus is understood. The reason this is important, the reason it's important is because as we, as God gives us the boldness to share the good news of Jesus, it needs to be rooted. It needs to be rooted in a history of God's revelation, of God's faithfulness. Otherwise, Jesus is just a dude who happened to die a really weird death and some people of his followers said that he rose again. There's a much bigger story that surrounds Jesus. Thousands of years that lead up to Jesus that allow the people to say, this guy's important. This guy is, the, is where the crux of the history of humanity lies. It's right here. And the crux of the future lies right here. So my last passage that I am going to leave you with is uh, in the Jerusalem council James brother James replied brothers listen to me Simon has related how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name a people who are scattered they're now being called in 
And with the words of the prophets, I agree, just as it's written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all of the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. Therefore, it's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the nations who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble them. This is God's good word to us. That God is so faithful and God is so good that he has sent his son to be a ruler for the rest of time. I'm going to check to see if there are text messages. We're good. And... uh, Next week, we're going to be discussing the promises of God and how they, and how they work together. Um, so I'm going to invite Devin, who is right now trying to recover the screens. Good, we got it. Devin's going to come up and close with us today, and I'm going to... Uh, I'm actually just going to pray one more time, and uh, God is going to... Man, God is doing such good things, and I think that's the reason that I feel such contentment. So God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you that as you draw us through the Old Testament, through the strings of your promises, and you reveal yourself greater and greater and greater, even at the point where we thought that it was fulfilled, we thought that it was going to be permanent, you had a bigger plan. When it comes to our church here at Promise, I pray you would start to birth in people's hearts the outcomes of some of that bigger plan that you would give us visions of what your Holy Spirit is doing and what you want to do, how you're still calling out to the nations, which of 70, in this school alone, there are 72 different nations represented at Chris Hadfield Public School. In this community, there are over 152 nations that people came directly from into Bradford within the past two years. And for what reason? For what reason do you call the nations together if not to reveal your glory? If not to reveal who you are? And so Jesus, I pray that you would embolden us again. That we would understand your good news and get an idea of your scope. And be so grateful on this Thanksgiving weekend. In Jesus' name.